Attention, attention please, stand by for another episode of When Humanists Attack. Hi, this is Chris West West, the pontificator with When Humanists Attack. We're a 501c3 not-for-profit religious organization that is a humanist organization and we're based in Vermont, but we do work all over the Northeast and the United States. Tonight, we're going to be interviewing a very important person, in my personal opinion, Dr. Daryl Ray. Daryl, welcome to When Humanists Attack. Well, good. I hope I don't get attacked too severely here. I'd like to keep myself in one piece tonight. Well, you might be interested in knowing that our particular uh, view is that when humanists attack, they write a check to support a cause. So (laughs) we're really glad to have you on tonight uh, to talk about what you do, who you are and what your work is. One of the things that was interesting that I found out when we were chatting on the Facebook to set up this meeting was that we're both have ties to Kansas. Right, right. You were Moran, Kansas, no less around. Yeah, uh, King Kate. My dad was born in Hutchinson, right Uh outside of of, uh, Topeka. Uh, and then lived all over Kansas. His, his dad worked for uh, Standard Oil in the Depression. And so oh. he was all over. But nobody would say Hutchison is near Topeka. That's that's uh, that's me. Not yeah, I was, was going to say that's an Easterner <laughs> saying that. It's like, you know, Boston's close to Washington, D.C. <laughs> I'm a lifelong uh, born and raised in Kansas, went away for grad school for six years, and then I came back. I travel all over the world. I, I love traveling, and Kansas is just a good place to be home. That's uh, awesome. I, I remember very clearly learning the history of Lawrence, Kansas, and the people who moved from where I'm living right now, right? A lot exactly. of people moved from Vermont into right. Kansas so that when it became a state, they could vote it as not being a slave state. If you, if you walked into my living room, the first thing you'll see is a huge mural of John Brown. Ah the hero of Kansas ah. and the man who started the civil war. He certainly, what, he certainly did. Yeah. But most people don't know that I'm a civil war nut and I know a hell of a lot about the civil war, but most people don't know that the civil war didn't start in 1861. It started in 1856. Right. When John Brown did his thing in Kansas, it was a, it was a tough time to live in Kansas. I'll tell you where I'm living right now. I'd probably be dead. If I wasn't, I'd be shooting somebody. <laughs> I mean, it was a, it <laughs> was a big, it was a big war. It, there was a four-year war in between Kansas and Missouri uh, before the Civil War ever started. It was pretty nasty. Which was all set up by the Missouri Compromise, which was once yeah. again pushing the question down the line, right? Uh, no, no, the Missouri Compromise actually delayed. It was the Kansas-Nebraska Act because ah. the Missouri Compromise allowed. Uh, cut the Mason Dixon line said no slavery. So, but then, but then uh, Stephen Douglas among other people got it all changed and they basically abrogated the Missouri compromise and uh, did the Kansas Nebraska acts, which said that this, the individual candidate states can vote on whether they want to be a slave state or a free state. Well, that was a big mistake. And it was a violation of the very basis of the uh, Missouri Compromise. Uh, compromise. So yeah, I could go on to history on that a lot. And it's just 15 miles from my house is when the, where the Lecompton, Kansas is where the slave constitution was, was ratified by illegally, illegally. Our first constitution was a slave constitution and it was Missourians coming over to Kansas. There were counties in Kansas that had more votes than they had humans, cows, chickens, and horses. 
because the Missourians were coming over and they were voting early and often, so to speak, <laughs> in a Kansas election. That does remind me, I have a, a very conservative buddy of mine, one of my best friends, and uh, we were sitting, or I do a radio show on building science with him, and uh, we were sitting in the studio when uh, the television, radio, and other news sources called the election for, for Biden and not for Donald Trump, and he's a, a Trump supporter. And he looked at me and he was like, I have lost all faith in the fairness of American elections. And I was like, <laughs> wait a minute, <laughs> which history of American elections are we talking about? <laughs> there have been a lot of them that have been pretty sketchy. <laughs> I'm just starting in 2000. We can go back from there. Uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Anyway, um, you didn't you didn't want to talk to me about the Civil War, but I, I would that, talk the I would talk the whole session about Civil War if you want. I, I think that you and I are going to sit down sometime when I'm out there with my camping trailer in Kansas, and we're going to ch oh, chew the fat about that for sure. Absolutely, I'll take you on a tour. We got a lot of Civil War related stuff around here. Well, that brings us right to why we have you as a guest. So we're a small group of secular humanists, and we're trying to give people a broad idea of what secular humanism is and what the movements are within secular humanism. And my involvement with uh, RFR is a little older than the coronavirus outbreak. <laughs> I started in, in January with my training and I started actually working on the, uh, the hotline in uh, February. And I, I really want to talk to you about and, and get the word out about RFR and what it is. So if you could just give me a little bit of background as the, the founder of the organization. I'm a psychologist. I've been a, in, in the practice of psychology in one way or another for 40, 40 plus years of my life. I'm retired now. I'm 70 years old. Enjoying retirement because I've got a lot to do with recovering from religion. And that keeps me busy, as you well know. But I, I published my book, The God Virus, in 2009, and it, it just exploded. I had no idea it would sell as well as it did or as many people would be reading it as it did. Just, I was pretty much an unknown author at the time that I published. I know I'd already published two other books in the organizational psychology field, but I'd never published in this area, psychology, religion. And it, it kind of surprised me. In fact, it surprised the editors. They had no clue it would um, would sell that well. The downside was within a month or two, I'm getting desperation emails and phone calls and letters in the mail, no less. I need help. And uh, I, I, I'm in a religious family. I don't know what to do. I have nobody to talk to. Can you help me? And I, and Chris, I didn't, I had, I couldn't help all those people. Not, Tried a, to not, help. not on your own, of course. No, yeah. no. And I had the technology I did not have, you know, I could, I could talk on people on the phone, but I had been talking on phone 24 hours a day and uh, still not serving a fraction. As you well know, we serve a hell of a lot of people every every single day on Recovering from Religion. And so, often very, very, very desperate people who really need an ear and yeah. some resources. Yeah. So that led me to do a kind of a funny thing. I My, um, my publicist, I was telling my publicist about this and he said, well, you should start a group called uh, Recovering from Religion and just... Um, use it to sell more books. And I thought, okay, that's an idea. I mean, the objective at that time was, of course, to get my name out there and sell books. So I announced that we're going to have a meeting at the IHOP down the street here, three miles from my house and back room. And I announced it on Meetup, only gave it a week's notice, and 11 people showed up. And of those 11 people, I only knew one of them. Everybody else was total strangers to me. 
And I just asked two questions in the meeting. I said, how did religion hurt you and how have you benefited from leaving? And three hours later, the uh, manager's kicking us out of the room because they're closing the restaurant. And, and I realized at that time, these people had a lot they needed to get off their chest and they needed a good facilitator to help them do that and other people to listen and share. And it was just a phenomenal experience. I mean, it was life-changing for me, Chris. I went into that thing, oh, just a way to sell books. I came out of that meeting saying, hell, I got, I got a whole career out here. I got a whole new angle on life. These people need help. And, and within a month, we had Recovering from Religion started. It took us a little while to kind of get on our feet, uh, to get a 501c3 status. And, and you know, it's, it's like any organization. Nobody's going to take you seriously for the first three or four or five years. You, you just got to earn your way into being people taking you seriously. And about, about five years ago, it started taking off. And, of course, then we about that time, we were financially able to bring Gail Jordan on as our executive director. And Gail's, Gail's just done a phenomenal job. She's, she's, a, she's the kindest, most gentle atheist you'll ever meet very well educated, a full-blown lawyer. Uh, I mean, what she isn't, isn't worth knowing. <laughs> She's just amazing. <laughs> so we got the right person at the right time. And then of course, I think the technology got uh, matured right. about the right time for us. And we were able to start putting some things together technologically that I don't think were possible, not much earlier. They might've been possible a year or two earlier, but not five or 10 years earlier. You were really at the right place, at the right time for this technology yes. to help you grow. And my original vision for Recovering from Religion was that it would be local groups sitting down once a, once or twice a month talking to each other. Much that like the my, support groups, right? That's, that's still that's exactly, a part of the program. It's, a, it's, a, it's an important part of our program. And that's what started it. What I had no clue about when I started it was what we would end up doing, the hotline, where we, we could do chats or we do phone calls. That wasn't even on my horizon, I, not even a dream. Uh, it took about three three years before that came into being. And I realized that the, the small groups just aren't getting a lot of traction. At that time, they weren't. And uh, so I finally started the helpline, and then that really blew up. I mean, we, I, I don't know if you've seen the growth curve. I have some graph I've been sharing recently. The growth curve is like that, yeah. and it has been for the last two years or, or more. It's been lower, but just seriously I mean strong growth. So we're and, not looking at the graph crew. Can you just give us some ideas of those numbers? Like how many people are calling in or chatting on the, on the chat line? Somewhere between three and 500 people are chatting or calling into us every month. Far more than that are sitting down and meeting um, in our support groups locally. Right. And then, then we got all these volunteers doing a lot of other things, one of which is the, the resource pages. And there's where we got tens of thousands of people visiting resources pages every month. So it's hard to say how many people are we actually helping or touching or supplying information and support to. It's, it's really hard to say, but I, I, I would not hesitate to say it's in the thousands, at, easily the thousands at this time. And if I'm going to think about that IHOP, in the back room with a week on a, a meetup out of your local area, which is not, you're not living in a major city in Kansas, are you? I'm, I'm a suburb of Kansas city. Okay. Yeah. There's, it's almost a, almost a 2 million Metro area. So if we could just look at that and say, okay, out of, out of this area, you got, 
you know, 11 people to show up or nine people to show up with a week's notice. And they were yeah. so desperate that they didn't think, oh, I'll wait. Yeah. You, yep. If you just multiply that by the number of people in America, that, that itself turns into millions. I think you're exactly right. There's a lot of desperate people out there. And they're, they're finding us. We get, well, you know, you've seen it. We get a lot of people coming to us because they listen to a podcast. Yeah. Um, because they heard me speak or Gail speak somewhere. It's, um, it's a constant flow of those kind of people. It's clear that you are filling a real niche in our society that was not being serviced at all. Absolutely. Right. And, and doing a great job of it. I mean, I'm on those, on those chats and I'm talking to people and sometimes I'm just, um, just amazed at the stories that I'm hearing from these people. And this is the only hope they see in a sea of yeah. dark. And, and it oftentimes is, we are their only lifeline. And especially if somebody's chatting in from Pakistan, I mean, they literally could get their head cut off for just talking to us. As you know, we've got very clear protocols to for people to, to follow, yeah. help, help protect them. But it it can be feel almost as almost it's not as dangerous, but can feel almost as dangerous to a Mormon gay child in Utah, whose parents are going to kick him out of the house in a, in a day or two after they find out the kid the kid doesn't believe in God anymore or, or is gay. Yeah, we've brought a good number of people onto other other supports like suicide hotlines or LGBTQ help hotlines. I mean, we're constantly cooperating and sending people on to other places that, but they came to us first. And it's usually because their religion was causing such problems in their life. They, and they, they found us and I'm glad they did, but it's, it's a hard, the stories we hear are heartbreaking yeah. and scary. I mean, I, I put myself when I'm a 15 year old kid, in a, in a fundamentalist family, but thankfully I had very loving parents and I had a lot of issues weren't there. I mean, I'm not gay, so that wasn't an issue. Uh, I was still ostensibly religious, even though I put on a good face. I, I really didn't believe most of the stuff I was taught, but I didn't feel like my life was in danger when I was a kid. Right. And I can't even imagine being in that same situation when I was 15. And Chris, I know over and over again, you've heard it too. These kids are being put into situations where any grown, mature, intelligent adult would have a hard time coping. And this 15, 16, 18-year-old, 21-year-old kid is having to deal with gigantic issues of rejection by their own family and, and having to find a way to support themselves if they get kicked out of the house or even life-threatening uh, things that are, that are right in their neighborhood. You know, they're going to get uh, shit kicked out of them because the neighbors found out they were gay or something, or the, yeah. or the church is going to shame them. And I mean, we've had people tell us that preacher called me up in front of the whole church and made me confess my, my sexual sins to everybody. We've seen that. And that is literally traumatizing that will cause PTSD in people. We so see a lot of that. RFR as, as we've been speaking about is an online chat. It's a call-in that's available anywhere in the world. The chat's available through anywhere in the world. We have protocols for protecting people who are calling in or chatting from countries where what they're talking about would be illegal and could get them in jail or, or killed. We have support groups that meet in person all around the country. And I believe now, are we, are we talking about oh, some in, in Europe also? Oh, absolutely. We've got them in Australia too, South Africa. 
We actually, but we also have phone lines. You can call direct from Australia, from Canada, from South Africa, from the United Kingdom, direct phone line. Yeah. And we hope to do more of that. We could, if we had the money, hint, hint, if we had the money, we could expand our direct phone lines to any number of countries. There's no limit. So if you're wondering what you should do with that nest egg that you were thinking about <laughs> donating to National Public Radio, I think I've got a better use for it. <laughs> oh, no, give half to National Public okay. Radio. Give the other half to us. I love uh, NPR. <laughs> Don, Don's got a big heart. He's going to share it. But yes, let's give half to RFR. <laughs> that does, does point me in the direction of the, the Secular Therapy Project, which is another pro program and project that you've been involved in setting up and is also desperately needed and could be much bigger also. Oh, Could you tell us a little about that? But after I did that one meeting at uh, the IHOP uh, and we worked for a couple of years on that, I started getting a different kind of phone call, a different kind of email saying that I, de I desperately need a therapist, but I've been to two therapists in the last year and both of them basically wanted to pray with me or send me back to church. Or they said, my mental illness was because uh, I I'm an atheist and don't believe in God. And, and I, I didn't, I've been out of clinical practice since uh, late 80s. I mean, I dabble back and forth. I'm obviously trained, and, but, but I don't keep up to date on my clinical practice. I've been an organizational psychologist, which has some clinical aspects to it. Let me be clear about that. But, but it's not strictly clinical. So I... I didn't know what the state of clinical psych was really. So I started researching. I started trying to help these people find secular therapists. And what I realized very quickly was you can't find a secular therapist easily because therapists don't advertise that I'm secular, that I use evidence-based methods. And so you could end up going to a therapist that appears to be well-trained, qualified and licensed, but they're still a damn Christian that wants to pray with you or take you back to their church. And that gave me the idea because I've also done a lot of online dating in my life. Um, Match.com, you know, those kinds of things. And it gave me the idea, you know, a therapist who comes out in Oklahoma City and says, I'm, a, I'm secular, I used evidence-based, I may even be an atheist. They would lose their entire practice because yeah. a, judge, a judge would not refer to them anymore because the judge is religious. The churches sure won't refer to them. Other therapists won't refer to them. So all the referral sources would dry up. Social workers oftentimes are notoriously so really self-preservation. Yeah, right. So so they have to have a way to to keep that under the radar. And I thought, well, dating sites do that all the time. You you get on a dating site on match.com and the two people can connect. They can even see pictures of each other. They can talk back and forth through the chat or whatever but they can't find any information. They don't know where they live. They don't have the phone number, all that sort of stuff. And only after they're comfortable with each other, will they decide to go to a coffee shop and, you know, have a first date, so to speak. Well, we could do the same thing. So we designed, Han Hills, an IT friend of mine, helped me design this uh, system that basically is like a dating system between clients and therapists. So now I've got a problem. Uh, I, I've got this great idea. I know how to build all this out, but I have no clients and I have no therapists. <laughs> so it took me a, it took me a couple of years to beat the bushes and get therapist friends of mine and get the word out and be on podcasts and build it up until we had enough therapists. Actually, I would call it a critical mass enough mm -hmm. that they could actually help somebody. 
And then it started to take off. And again, our growth curve is, is really strong, really strong. Growth. And it has been since 2012. It started in 2012. And I, I look at the growth curve about once a month, and it's just a steady uh, growth curve about like, like the one I said earlier with our chats. And we're now up to over 20,000 registered clients and 464 registered therapists spread out all over North America primarily. We have a few in, uh, we've got somebody in the Netherlands. We got three or four in the United Kingdom. We got three or four in uh, Australia. We got one in South Africa. And we would love to expand more into other countries. It just, it's a lot of, um, it just takes a lot of time yeah. and, and effort. But, but the, the beautiful thing is now people have got a resource. And you know, since COVID, one of the, one of the kind of, uh, benefits that has happened with COVID is therapists simply were, were not online. They weren't doing therapy online until COVID hit. And now they have to, they have no choice. You can't have people walking into your office all, all the time. So uh, we're actually serving more people more easily now. Let's say that um, I'm a therapist in Oklahoma city, but there's someone in Lawton, Oklahoma, 300 miles away that needs a therapist. They can just get on, and and have a good therapy session just like you and i are talking right now yeah. and that has been a real big benefit the still the downside is we got licensing issues that person lot in oklahoma is actually probably closer to waco texas than they are to oklahoma city but they can't go to a therapist in waco because the license doesn't work across state lines so we still got those kinds of issues but at least it's opened up the opportunities for for people to connect at least within the same state or if states have some cooperative agreements. Why do we need sector therapy? We need it because there are a, a lot, and I can't even give you an estimate, but it's, it's ridiculous. It's probably 50% or more of therapists out there are poorly trained. They don't know how to keep their own religion and their own value system out of the therapeutic relationship. And so people are being hurt and harmed. If my, if my issue has to deal with my religious upbringing and the trauma it caused on me, if the therapist is not capable of getting their own beliefs out of the system, out of, out of the relationship, they could actually re-traumatize the person. Yeah. And that's what we see. People come to us saying, the last two therapists wanted to pray with me and that just pissed me off so much. I left, I never going back and now I don't want to ever see another therapist again. Right. Second thing is evidence-based. A lot of therapists are very poorly trained and they don't, They've not been trained in evidence-based methodologies. And there's, there's only a limited number. And when I say limit evidence-based, I mean, it has good peer-reviewed scientific studies that support things like uh, dialectical behavioral uh, therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy or mindfulness. Uh, I mean, there's, there is a, a cluster of therapeutic approaches that we've got a lot of, not just clinical, but also um, e evidential um, experimental, if you will, evidence that they work and they work right. on specific conditions. I mean, the doc, we have this joke, you know, the doctor says, take an aspirin and call me in the morning kind of thing. Well, aspirin doesn't cure everything. And the same kind of therapeutic approach doesn't cure everything. Yeah. You need to be targeted about what you're going to do. If somebody's got a trauma, then you may need to use exposure therapy, which has yeah. got a great under, underlying the evidence it. systematic desensitization yeah, of, exactly. the, of the stimulus, right? Exactly, exactly. So there's 
so many therapists out there are poorly trained or they were trained 50 years ago or whatever, and they, they are not committed to using evidence-based methods. And so what we've got is a vetting team of about six people, all highly qualified, all atheists, by the way. And their job is to make sure that you use evidence-based, that you are secular and that you're licensed. You, can't, you cannot find that out by just going to the Psychology Today listing or no. any other, almost any other listing. No. That information is just not there. So, and you can, you can believe, I mean, if our people are in that, they are secular and they do use evidence-based. We, we, we have a reputation to uphold there. Yeah. So I had a, a, a crisis about a year and a half ago. I, I fell into a deep depression. I went on to the psychology website after talking to some friends of mine um, who are, have also been members of families or themselves gone through years and years of therapy. Um, what might work for the type of depression that I'm suffering from? And they were talking the cognitive behavioral therapy would be a, a good start. So I, instead of just throwing out a wide net, I, I went to the Psychology Today website and I typed in CBT uh, and I got 15 people and it took me almost two weeks. I was in desperate crisis, but it took me almost two weeks to find someone to just have a, a meeting with them. Um, I went and had a meeting with them and I was so disappointed in this therapist. I walked away with a uh, post-it note that had a website where I could listen to mindfulness stuff. And I was like, okay, yeah. you're telling me to do, I'm already doing mindfulness and meditation, by the way, thanks for asking. <laughs> the, um, and I became, I got rescued because my uh, son has been involved in a local community called Retribe. One of the people who runs that is a therapist uh, and she is awesome. And my wife called up and said, could you please see Chris? And I went there and she, after an hour, I was able to function really oh wow that cool. that good uh, she uses integrated family therapy which i'm sure is a, a process you're aware of yeah. um yeah. so she gave me coping strategies that were ones that i didn't have for what i was going through mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. got me at least into the next week now it wasn't suicidal at any point i have an allergic reaction to suicide because my mom uh, try to commit suicide when I was a kid. So it's like, even if I thought yeah. about suicide, my brain says, no, 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 you can't go that way. We know what that does to the people around you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, but that was my experience. I could not find a therapist. I just happened to yeah. have someone in my circle who I didn't even know was there, who was able to help me. Your illustration is pretty much the reason why we have the second therapy project. Because a therapist could be right down the street. You'd never know it. Yeah. And, and there's no way to vet that person. And we do the vetting for you. A large number of people I know and that I interact with daily could use help if, if they just had a few more tools in their toolbox. Their lives would be so much more fun, interesting, helpful, hopeful. And that's what you just said. You found some, you were taught some new tools um, and I call them tools, coping strategy. Yes, yeah, some tools are for coping, but there's other tools and you put all these tools together. And if you learn when and where to use them, you can just pull that tool out and say, ah, I'm, I'm experiencing this particular cognitive distortion right now. And that's this tool will help me get around that distortion. I, I wish, and I'm not the person that says everybody should go through therapy. But I will say that the vast majority of people I know 
could use the coping skills, could use the tools, and they don't even know it. Everybody can benefit from, from the tools of CBT. It's such a basic, such an, it's a very basic approach. One thing that fascinates me as just an outside observer is the whole development of religious trauma syndrome, the create, trying to create a pathway where maybe in uh, the, the next version of the, uh, uh, of the rules, uh, the DSM. I am not hopeful or even advocating that there be, there be a diagnosis in the DSM-5 for okay. religious trauma syndrome. I'm not against it, don't get me wrong. I'm just saying we don't need to wait. We already have all the criteria for diagnosing PTSD. Yeah. Now, nobody disagrees with this basic assumption that a, a wide range of things can cause PTSD. A child being beaten in their home of origin at eight, year old, eight years old for having been caught masturbating could likely experience PTSD from that. A soldier coming back from Iraq who's been in the middle of a battle and saw comrades wounded or killed could experience PTSD. Nobody disagrees with this. Look at the list of criteria that you look for, and there's a list of them in the DSM, a list of criteria that says, if you meet all these, then you are probably experiencing PTSD. And here are the treatments that work for PTSD. So we know how to match the treatment with the, with the diagnosis. The next question I would then ask is, what do you think the motivation was? And when I hear my parents were fundamentalist Christians who thought children who masturbate are going to hell, we now have a diagnosis op opportunity. Yep. It, it doesn't, it's not rocket science at that point. Religion is intimately tied into trauma. Yeah. And it happens over and over and over again. And what we see, and you've seen it, I'm sure, Chris, with our peep chat, yeah. we, we see people chatting in. And as we listen to them and we listen to their experiences and the stories they tell us, we can clearly see they're experiencing trauma. I can't sleep at night. I wake up in night terrors. I wake up in fear of hell. My parents have, are going to kick me out if they find out. I'm in, all these things, any one of which could potentially traumatize somebody. And all I need to know is, what religion, what was the religious influence there? And if I find out it was a major influence, which it frequently is, frequently. then we've got, we've got religious trauma syndrome. There is such a thing as religious trauma syndrome because there is such a thing as PTSD. That's all yeah. you have to know. My friend uh, Vincent is uh, a recovering Catholic and, and he's our age. Um, and he's one of my best friends. I've known him for a very long time. And I also know that when I'm speaking to him about his experience, he always brings it back to the belief. He always brings it back to the Catholicism he was raised in and the fact that he was gay and how he knew that is that he was, what, how does he put it, uh, bathed in the warmth of the family until he realized that he couldn't go on anymore. And he knew he was going to be ejected, at least by his father and, and, and the grandparents. His mother was a, a completely different story, thank goodness, and was completely supportive of anything he, he needed to experience to live his, what are we calling it these days, his, his authentic self. Um, so when I talk to people about uh, their trauma, I have stories from friends like Vincent about what they went through. Mm -hmm. uh, what I've learned working for RFR, what I've talked to the, these uh, these people, 
has just been chilling when I talk to someone who calls up and says, I'm in college, my parents are deeply religious, I'm gay, I can't tell them or my church or my friends or my neighbors because then they'll kick me out and I have nothing. Right. And I'm this far into my education and I'm completely financially dependent on these people. Help. Most of the time I want to go out and hug these people. More yeah, than me too. Right. Yeah. You just say, you know, I can't give you a place to live and I can't give you a job and I can't rescue you from your situation. But boy, I wish I just just give you some creature comfort. Just give you a, a hug. And what I can tell you, and this is something I've been telling people forever, but your training for for uh for people working for the hotline really helped is you're not alone. You're not the first mm -hmm. person going through this. There right. are people probably in your own town who are going through the exact same thing right now. Yep. And if you can just get through this little bit and we'll, we'll hook yep. you up with a meetup and we'll hook you up with, with a therapist and we can do that and we'll get you resources to get you through now to there, but there is a there. Yeah. Right. And you missed one little thing that we haven't talked about, and that's our internal community on Slack. Oh, yes. We've Please. got, yeah, we've got entire groups uh, that are dedicated just to ex-Catholics, ex-Jews, ex-Muslims, ex-Mormons, you name, ex-Baptists, you name it, we've got it. Even people who are currently in the military, you know, you, we've even got a spot for those people, LGBTQ. If you, you are listening to this and you want, you have nobody around to talk to, you can chat with us, and while you're chatting, ask, could I join the community? And tell, tell the uh, agent that answers that you, you heard about the community on, on this podcast, and, and we'll, they'll vet you. They'll ask a few questions, and then they'll send you an email that lets you in, invite you to come in. And then you'll be able to talk to other people who are going through, if not exactly the same thing you are, but something very similar, maybe from the same former religion, We've got lots of ex-Mormons in our thing. We've got lots of ex-Baptists. Lots of ex-Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, black black non-believers. Yeah. I saw that picture you were with, uh, with Mendisa. Yeah. yeah. She's a sweet and dear friend. I, I love Mendisa. And we, at Recovery Religion, we support our we support black non-believers as much as we possibly can. Yeah. And we've even given them their own internal channel, as you know, yeah. uh, with us. But there's so much there's so much need for somebody just to talk to. Yeah. And we can provide that. Maybe not. It's not the same as having face-to-face -face friends or acquaintances, but but it's better than nothing in this COVID time. That's one of the, the first things that we say when we're talking to someone. You can share anything you want, but you don't have to share anything if you don't want to. This right. is a safe right. space. You know, we want to you make know, you feel comfortable here. We, we really, as you know, we work really hard to make it a safe space. Yeah. You can come in and tell us just about anything we're going to do whatever we can to support you emotionally. Yeah. We also, as you know, we put a lot of time and effort into training our agents and you don't just come through a training program. You don't just read up a, a manual. You don't, you don't just talk to somebody and get interviewed. You literally have to go through a pretty, for a volunteer, for a volunteer position. It's quite an extensive training, I think. And I think, as you know, I, I think we're, we're in a constant training mode. Every, yeah. Every time you do a chat, you may have three or four or five other people watching you. That's asking right. You're, you're not doing this in a, in a bubble. You're, not, no. you're not, not like the therapist in a room, closing the door, saying whatever you want. And it's yeah. then hearsay if the person says, oh, he tried to get me to pray. No, yeah. <laughs> when I'm on a phone call with someone, there are usually two or three other helpline agents who are listening in yeah. 
and giving feedback at the end. But they never participate. It's always between no, no, no. The it's just one to one. Yeah, very clear that it's yeah. not a group of people talking yeah. to one person. Yeah. But, but it's a it's a good check and balance, and it trains you. I mean, I'll bet you're a much better uh, taking phone calls now after ten phone calls than you were the first time. Oh yes. Not just from the experience, but from the feedback you got from people. Both as a person in the project and the program there are some things that are still in development, like the, yeah. the brand new resource library, which for a long time was a stumbling block for me because I'm like, there are so many resources and I don't know yeah. which one, I, how do I type that in and get the thing that will help this person with the new resource library, you just go in and you can find the topic and the, and the help and things are being produced at a, a breakneck speed <laughs> by know, the atheist I community. <laughs> I mean, theremin yeah. strings, the stuff that they yeah. put out just blows me away. Yeah. Oh, and, and there, not just them. But and, and there's a lot of resources that nobody ever has brought all into one spot. Yeah. A few years ago, there was this there was a secular hub or something. There was there was a place where people were trying to bring them all in, but it went defunct or it didn't get updated. And so and we'd actually used it for a while, but it wasn't functional for our purposes. So we decided we would create our own. But here's the beautiful thing. There's nowhere on the planet that all this stuff is coming together in one spot except us. Yeah. We are developing a library and it's a virtual digital library that's phenomenal. Dozens of things are coming in almost every day. Yeah. We've got three curators, people who are kind of run the library, they're doing a phenomenal job. And uh, it's just it it just gives almost brings tears to my eyes to see all the work these people are doing and and how much effort they're putting into it because they want to help somebody else. And yeah. they're not just helping one person, they're helping Hundreds All of, of us. people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They help that, us being able to communicate clearly and we help hundreds of people. Yeah. That. So, yes. The beautiful thing is no matter where you're volunteering at RFR, you are supporting, you are supporting many, many other people. Yeah. It's, it's not like some jobs where, you know, do, if I disappear tomorrow, would, would my job really matter? Uh, there's not a job in all of RFR that doesn't matter a hell of a lot. We could not provide the service we're providing without that library yeah it's it's just that simple it, it's, and we it's couldn't provide changer. the we couldn't provide the quality of service we provide if we didn't have really good trainers yeah. who have already demonstrated their competence it's it's not like they're just walking in off the street they've shown us they know what the fuck they're doing and then they turn around and volunteer be a trainer to somebody like you and when you're finished you you've got your wings and you feel more confident that you can actually do this because it's not easy. I, I don't want anybody to walk away from this podcast thing and it's easy. No, it's it's not easy, but it's a skill and it's a skill. I guarantee you will learn. You will use the rest of your life Yeah, and you're going to get free training from us. But I've seen so many people say these skills transfer to my marriage, transfer to my kids, transfer to my family, especially my religious family. I yeah. talk to them now differently. I have a better relationship because I don't let the religious thing get in the way. And right. So, you know, there's a lot of benefits there. That does that does uh, point me in a direction of street epistemology uh, because there are so many basic approaches that you are teaching when you're doing the training that have firm foundations in the Socratic method, but also in in what we've seen in the development of, of street epistemology. Yes. One of the tenets of secular humanism is critical thinking skills. Right. And 
I remember when the uh, original book came out, right? Suit Epistemology, a Guide for Creating Atheists. Mm -hmm. That was a good book. And Anthony Magbosco and a couple of other people took that and were able to turn that into action right away. But now we have this book, How to Have Impossible Conversations. And I think that book is a game changer because yeah, yeah. I don't think you can easily take the first book and turn that into street epistemology. But the second book is straight up how to become an SE expert. Not that there aren't other ways to learn it. You can go to street epistemology internationally. You can get on the discard. They do trainings. They're great. And you guys have incorporated a lot of those ideas into the training for the volunteers. Yes. But as a a way forward for us to be able to continue to have those conversations. It is invaluable. Anthony Madden Bosco has been a volunteer with RFR for about six years. He, go, he goes way back. I mean, he's been around as long as almost anybody else. And he helps us with the uh, interviewing process. He helps us. He's been helping us the training process. There's two organizations that recover from religion goes out of our way to support. I mean, there's others that we cooperate with. Street epistemology and black non-believers are two very important organizations that we we see them as really sister organizations yeah. that that deserve our attention and our support and we try to support them any way we can the development of the black non-believers is so important for helping people get out of religion when they feel trapped nobody should get out of religion if they don't feel trapped i'm not advocating that we should get rid of religion at all or that we should beat people up because they believe However, there has to be another way that's an acceptable way to interact with your culture and not be a betrayer of your culture because you decide that this one story doesn't fly for you. I think that's an interesting observation you just made because most of those people didn't appear to be religious when you were in high school, but now they are. Well, that's it's kind of hard to say because um, we had a gospel course as a part oh. of the choral program uh -huh. I was in the gospel course, but the gospel course was very religious. Um, I did not hear people being religious on a daily basis to me or in the oh, classes oh, I was okay. in. So that's yeah. true. Um, but there, there, there is, uh, especially in singing, because I was a, a, a voice student at music in our high school, so many of these uh, of people, uh, friends of mine at the school, got their initial singing training at church. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I did, too. I was a tenor soloist in churches for 20 years. I read that in your bio. I'd love to hear you <laughs> sing sometime. I'm a baritone. <laughs> if I could support any couple of groups going forward, it would be RFR. It would be the American Humanist Association. It would be Black Nonbelievers. It would be the Secular Therapy Project. I would also want to support the Clergy Project. They're doing awesome work. Yes, I yes. cannot imagine what it would be like to be a priest or, or a, a, a pastor and not believe and have to go in and lie every day. Yes, just to keep right. your, your, your family in, in diapers and peanut butter. Well, and they, it's more than that. There's Buddhist monks. They've got Muslim imams. They, it's, a, it's a wide range of ex-clergy, and there's not just Christian-focused, of course. But religion has been, in, has been infecting our culture in new and creative ways for the last 20 or 30 years or more. That's why I wrote my book, The God Virus, because that's what's happening as we speak. And I, I'm not one to say I told you so, but I want to say I told you so right now. 
when I wrote the God virus back in 2009, I had no idea that what I was writing in that book would come true with such a vengeance. Mm. I almost feel like a prophet sometimes, uh, Chris, uh, not, not a uh, very good one, I guess, but <laughs> <laughs> all the people I write about in there have just taken over our culture. Yeah. And I think it's important for us to realize what's going on so we can develop counter strategies to take yeah. back our culture and, and get a more humanist approach to, to our, to our culture. It's actually a perfect segue to the, the, the last piece I wanted to talk to you about. Um, one of the things that my friend Vincent has been pushing and we're starting to look into more and more is something called mutual aid societies. The institutions that we have have not been providing us with the services that we need as a secular humanist community. Mm. We, we are seeing, for instance, uh, that court case where the city of Philadelphia is being sued by the, the, the Catholic Church so that they can discriminate against people who are going to be vetted about whether or not they can adopt children because mm. gay people are against the religious beliefs of the Catholic Church and therefore it impinges upon the First Amendment rights yeah. and trumps the discrimination, right? So the question that, that springs to mind on the mutual age society front is why is there not a large secular humanist organization to do that instead? There's plenty of room to develop mutual aid kind of societies. I would be real reluctant to let go of the reins and let the Catholic Church take on the legal mantle and, and be validated and gain control over tax dollars and, you know, all that stuff that comes with having access to government funds and government legitimacy. This lawsuit is important. Now, who knows with the current Supreme court, what'll happen, but all the mutual aid societies in the world, won't solve the problem that government has massive coercive authority and 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 funds to enforce that coercive authority as we've seen with black lives matter and the pers- you know the the fact that there's systemic racism it, well the systemic racism is there despite the quote mutual aid societies that have been around forever i mean yep. the, and, and and NAACP could be seen as a mutual aid society uh, Southern um, Poverty Law Center. Poverty Law Center yeah. could be seen as a mutual aid. They're there, but nothing competes. Nothing can compete with that. Even, you know, the massive amounts of resources that the richest person has is not going to be able to compete with the Catholic legally Church. and stuff. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm not against what you're saying. I'm just saying it's pie in the sky to think that'll solve the problem. The Catholic Church still needs to be taken down a notch or two. And if they want to provide services using tax, using tax dollars, they need to provide those services without discrimination to anybody. And if they can do it to a gay person, they can do it to a black person. If they Absolutely. can do it to a black person, they can do it to a woman, yep. which they are. Yep. So what they want to do is choose the segment of society they want to serve. And what who they really want to serve are the target audiences for their particular religion. Yep. They don't want to serve Muslims. And they don't want to serve gays. They don't want to serve women uh, unless they can grab them, bring them in. So I'm, that'd be my concern. The term uh, mutual society seems to have a lot of history and and connotations, more creating uh, 
infrastructure, uh, secular humanist infrastructure that we all thought for the longest time was the government, right? We all thought that the government itself was this neutral, non-religious one way there. No matter what the person did when they got out of work and they went home, we expected those people not to be bringing that with them and implementing their own particular brand of whatever on their work. Um, but that seems to not be happening. Well, I think that was a myth that we we didn't uh, acknowledge. I mean, the fact that what's her name and uh, in that courthouse wouldn't wouldn't yeah. marry marry two gay people. She's a she's a representative of the government. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. She she wasn't the first one to try to do that. And 20 years earlier, if anybody had gone to any county courthouse, they would have been refused. So the government has the power and we can't ignore that. If there's going to be a mutual aid society, I'd say it needs to be the legal arm of, of the humanists or the legal arm of American atheists or the legal arm of the Southern Poverty Law Center. I mean, those people, it's the legal component that's important here because laws give power to discriminate yeah. or or they take away the power to discriminate. Yeah. I mean, the Civil Rights Act of 1963 and four and five were were efforts to, to take the discrimination out of the law that had been there since Jim Crow. And even before that, even through slavery, there's a lot law can do and we can't abandon that. The vast majority of, of adoption service funds goes to the Catholics because they've got the infrastructure to support it you're not ever going to be able to compete with that on the humanist side. You just can't. There's, yep. and, and they're going to have the coercive power as well. There's, there's a lot of coercion that comes with money, like the Salvation Army knows. You know, you can't have the food until you hear our prayer. I think we have to be realistic about how this society works. And I'm, I'm going to get on my hobby horse here for a minute, Chris. Yay, a hobby. We found, we found a hobby horse. <laughs> I think this current administration has been a wake-up call for people who don't take the power of our legal system seriously. I mean, to say, well, I don't want to vote because I don't like this or that person. Well, now we got a Supreme court that's going to take your vote away if you're the wrong color or could, could do that. And yeah. certainly would if they'd have been in place properly or other things, you know, they're going to take away the right to woman uh, for a woman to choose and stuff like that. So we got a wake up call here. There's a hell of a lot going to happen in the next four years and changing presidents isn't going to change that. You, you've got a lot more than simply getting a, a democratic president. We're in a situation right now, culturally, where religion has, is a minority of our population and yet it is extreme is expressing through the coercive power of, of government, uh, an outsized influence on our culture. That's what I say in the God virus, that we are subject to this coercive power that once they've, they've been electing people to everything from the city council, dog catcher, you name it. They've been electing, electing, electing for the last 40 years since Jerry Falwell started this in 1980. So that's, that's what, 40 years of working to get themselves into positions of power. And now they're expressing that power. Yep. And we're surprised. Well, I'm not surprised. I've never been surprised at what these people can do. All they care about is power. 
And once they get it, they're not going to relinquish it. The John Birch Society uh, has been a part of that whole thing. And the Koch brothers are, their father was one of the founding members of the John Birch Ab- Society. Yeah, absolutely. And they're putting money into all of these very small races, trying to stack things and get yep. that, that, uh, you, what you said, oversized. Outside, uh, yeah. out, out, Right. There are almost yeah. 100 people who were put on federal courts in the last couple of years under Mitch McConnell's tutelage that have have no right, according to the American Bar Association, to be a judge at all. Right. And they're there for life. And these people are sometimes 35 or 40 years old. They're going to be there for a long time. They're going to have a very big effect on our society. And that's the gaming. They figured it out. There is the one twist, which is supposed to create an independent judiciary. That was the purpose of having the lifetime appointment, that these people would no longer need to worry about getting elected. They could be their own person. But we're putting it in ideologues, and these ideologues are there for life. And they've been working for 50 plus years to make this happen. People often use the word conspiracy in a way that doesn't mean a conspiracy. But when you have a group of people getting in a room, making choices and doing stuff, that's the definition of a conspiracy. Well, so religion <laughs> religion is just a gigantic conspiracy. That's all it is. I'm looking forward to, to doing my part to work against that tide, to, to be a, a beacon of light, to try to, to get the word out with our When Humanists Attack channel, but also... Uh, through supporting RFR as a volunteer and financially and all these other groups. Um, We're really big into education. We haven't really uh, started any projects, but one of the things that I don't know if you noticed this, but came out recently, I hope my my camera is set up right, uh, is that we have a game that came out. This is (laughs) called Debunked. Um, And I've been playing it with my teenage son. And Uh it is a game that teaches about logical fallacies. A school of thought is the group there in... uh, out of San Francisco, originally out of uh, Brisbane, uh, Australia. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, they have a series of other cards, which are critical thinking, teaching tools and things like that. How to make learning your critical thinking skills fun. Okay. And uh, the, so we've been playing this for a week and, and we're constantly talking about, oh, that's a non sequitur or that's a uh, yeah, right. personal <laughs> incredulity. A fallacy. Yeah. So the, the nomenclature is starting to, to cycle Excellent. in our daily uh, speech. That's a tool. I mean, yeah. what you're talking, that's just another cons- cognitive tool that you're putting in your toolbox. Excellent. Absolutely. Great. Well, well, that's better than the Cards Against Humanity that I've I've played recently, but <laughs> I'm very good at I'm very good at that one too, especially <laughs> the uh, sexual components. <laughs> My brother's friends with the people who designed that. He's been a gamer forever. Oh yeah. And, okay. um, when they were first coming out, like six years ago, he would send us these little packets without telling us who was sending them or what they were for. So we had this little pile oh, of these cards in the corner, yeah. oh. and then it came out that it was Cards Against Humanity, and as we had all these you know, great cards that had been sitting around. We didn't know anything about it or what to do with them (laughs) until that moment. I can't thank you enough for coming on and and sharing uh, information about RFR and your personal experiences and talking about all the little things we've talked about. Um, I am going to continue not only being an RFR a helpline uh, supporter and worker, but also continuing to run the, the Burlington area uh, support group, which I've been doing uh, since uh, April, actually March. I had my first one in February. They shut us down. Everything has been virtual since yeah. then. <laughs> but 
Uh, right now, my best uh, my best ability to support you is to actually uh, do the the volunteering. If at some point I I get a bag with ten thousand dollars in it, I'll certainly make sure at least half of it goes to you. Right? Other right. half we've already decided goes to NPR. NPR, so. right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I can't get out of that. Um, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Yes, yes. I hope people go and look uh, look at. Uh, recover from religion on our website chat in test us out see what if you're we're telling the truth and yeah. look at my books the god virus or sex and god either one of those and uh, pay attention to what's going on in our culture and pay attention to how religion's impacting your life in ways you may not have thought about in the past so thanks for having me on Absolutely. This is Chris West West, the pontificator uh, for When Humans Attack. Uh, thanks again for joining in and don't forget to like and subscribe. I want to thank our technical crew, Robin, back there doing all the work all the time. We couldn't get it done without you. And please stay tuned for the next episode of When Humanists Attack. They write a check. <laughs> <laughs>